Welcome everybody that's online and everybody that's here today. Um, quite a snowstorm, wasn't it? I told my wife this morning when I was growing up, I uh, went to the Lutheran church, and part of the confirmation, they had you do a reading so for your confirmation. And I was paranoid to get in front of people and speak. And the day that I was to read, we had this unprecedented snowstorm, and they called off church. I think it was the only time in the history of the church and then today I'm going to preach and we have this snowstorm. Pat says there's a message there somewhere. I don't know what it is. But anyway, please pray with me before we start. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you that you love us, that you are love. We thank you that you sent your Son to help us, to save us, when there was no hope for us. We thank you for your word where you reveal yourself so that we may know you better, that we may develop a relationship with you, that we may trust you. I'd ask, Lord, now that uh, you prepare hearts here, that you give me the right words, Lord, that bring you honor, praise, and glory. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's sermon is two parts. The first in your sermon notes, you'll see that it, the, the first note says, in the image of. January has been designated as Sanctity of Life Month, and uh, we haven't talked about that. There's an a insert in your bulletin with regards to that. Um, a few years ago when Ronald Reagan was president, he designated, uh, I think it was January 22nd, to be the day that we honor uh, the unborn. And um, so today I'd just like to talk about why we honor the unborn, pray for the unborn, honor life. Um, since the, the ruling of the Supreme Court in 1973 um, that abortion was legal throughout the United States, there's been almost 62 million abortions. That's approximately one-fifth of our current population. That's one in every five people. Think about that. God only knows, too, how many worldwide. They say in China that number is just off the charts when they had their single-child mandate or whatever it was. Well, life has value, and we need to start in Genesis. Genesis 1.1. It's a memory verse for the kindergarten Awanas. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in doing so, he is the author. He knows what creation needs. And he knows that creation has value because he created it. If you look in Genesis, in chapter 1, verse 11, you'll see that God starts to record the details of creation. First off, he tells of the plants, and he says the plants are to reproduce themselves, all kinds, with the seeds, and that it'll be after their kind. He goes on to say that it was good. Then in Genesis 1.20, there's a similar pattern where God reveals the details of creation about fish, birds, and sea creatures, and that they too are to reproduce themselves in their own kind. And again, when the animals are created, in verse 24, 
they too are able to reproduce themselves in their own kind. And then he said, after all that, it is good. But when God created human beings, man, in verse 26, the pattern changed. He says, and I quote, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us, to reign over all the creatures, all of creation. And if you look on Psalm 8, which is a favorite psalm of mine, I'd like to read it to you. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. When I look at the night sky and see the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them, you, yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority, the flocks and herds, all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims the ocean currents. Mankind is special, special. Mankind did not evolve to the apex of the evolutionary period. God created him from the beginning special. Then after Eve was created and Adam was 130 years old, they came together and they had a son who was Adam and Eve's own likeness in the image of. And that image of is a specialness that God imputes. Adam and Eve were created in and passed, they were created in the image of, and they pass this on from generation to generation down to today. All human beings are made in the image of. And they're special, regardless of their any distinction, situation in life, saved or unsaved, young or old, sick or healthy, poor or affluent. Born or unborn. Jesus died for them all. Each and every one. Because we're made in the image of, and he loves us. And he cares for those, and he cares for us. And we, as a church, if we're truly born again, we should be coming more like Christ Jesus. And we too should care for those that Jesus cared for. Because they were made in the image of. And especially those that don't have a voice. So that's the first part of my sermon. Now the second part. I titled it, Where's the Zeal? Hopefully you'll be able to connect the dots when I'm done. <laughs> Approximately 48 years ago, a friend of mine, Kim, was working a summer job on weekends as a lifeguard at Lake Pakawa in northern Wisconsin. He told me he'd taken two life-saving courses in college 
the year before and is actually uh, certified to teach life-saving. While on duty one Sunday afternoon in July, while sitting up on one of those wooden stands, he hears a young boy running down the beach. Help me, help me, she's drowning. So Kim says he jumps down, summons the other guard to clear the water, and starts running towards the boy. As it turns out, there's a girl drowning, but she's not in the designated swim area. So Kim ends up following this eight-year-old boy who turns out to be the girl's brother down the beach about 200 yards through some trees and around a point to a picnic area. When they arrive, they find the girl's mother standing up on a six-foot embankment overlooking the lake. When Kim asks her, where is the girl? She just points out in a general direction and says, out there. Kim said it was just open water, not even a ripple, no girl in sight. So he says he jumps down the embankment, jumps in the water, swims out about 20 yards, dives down, it's about 10 feet to the bottom, starts swimming forward, arms outstretched, sweeping side to side, trying to find her. He said the water was kind of murky when suddenly he runs into her leg with his head. He said she was lying on her back, facing up, arm and legs outstretched, mouth and eyes wide open. He grabs her, gets her to the surface, then to the shore. And the first attempt up the embankment, she slips out of his hands and down to the beach. Kim said she was a 12-year-old, all arms and legs, and soaking wet was quite slippery. Adrenaline pumping, he said he shouldered her a second time and attempted the second attempt and grabbed tree roots to scale the embankment. All the while, he said, blood and water were gushing out of her mouth. Then he grabs her by the ankles, shaking her upside down for what seemed like eternity until the flow stopped. Laying her down on her back, he gets ready to start CPR when he feels a hand on his shoulder. Then he hears, I'm a doctor, I'll take over now. With Kim holding her, the doctor sweeps out her mouth a couple times. Gives her mouth to mouth. And at one point, she bites the doctor's thumb and says, Mama. What followed is something out of the movies. With the help of others, they put, on a put her on a blanket and carry her to the parking lot to wait for an ambulance. Only to wait and wait and wait. After 35 minutes, the ambulance drives up with the front bumper dragging and the front quarter panel smashed in. What should have taken 10-minute drive turned out to be 35 minutes. You see, as the ambulance was coming out, it came upon an old deaf guy out for a Sunday drive on the narrow, windy Wisconsin back roads. When the old guy finally came upon a car that had pulled over hearing the sirens, instead of pulling over, the old guy decides to pass the stopped car just as the ambulance is passing him, and both go into the ditch. <laughs> as it turns out, though, the 12-year-old girl named Linda makes it to the hospital in severe condition and spends seven days in intensive care and recovers fully. Kim gets interviewed by a local TV station and a write-up in the local newspaper as a hero. It's a great story, isn't it? Action, suspense, drama, happy ending. My kind of story. Except there's the rest of the story as Paul Harvey would say, 
Some of you younger people don't know who Paul Harvey is. Ask somebody older later on. Well, last October, Skippy and I get a call from Kim. He wants us to put a roof on a garage for him. And as we're working there, he has us in for lunch. Homemade chili. Kim's now retired, married, two daughters. They're both married, and he's a grandpa of five. As we ate, Kim retold the story about that day in July so long ago and went on to say that a couple years ago, he got to thinking, whatever happened to that 12-year-old Linda? And that he was sharing that with another friend whose wife was big into genealogies, and she subscribed to a number of these search websites. Well, it ended up, Kim gave this lady Linda's name, the date of the accident, the town, to see if she could find her. Kim said within two minutes of giving her that information, he received an email of the newspaper article. I actually have a copy of that too. And then within two minutes more, she had Linda's name, married name, and her address. She still lives in that same hometown. So Kim wrote her, and he said that they had met, they had met once about 46 years ago at Lake Pacaba on a Sunday afternoon in July, and that he was the lifeguard. And that he and his wife were going to be coming up to Wisconsin next summer, and that if it'd be okay, he'd like to meet her, and if not, that's okay. And he, he, he enclosed his business card. Well, about three or four days later, Kim gets a phone call. And it starts with, Just color me shocked. This is Linda. I'd love to meet you. So they set a date at a restaurant in a small town in Wisconsin. The day comes and Kim and his wife enter the restaurant. Kim is greeted with Linda running across the room in tears, arms flailing, shouting, thank you, thank you, thank you. She embraces Kim with a kiss on the cheek. And then for the next two hours, introduces Kim and his wife to all her family, all her friends, and all her neighbors as the man who saved her. The eight-year-old brother that had summoned Kim that day was there too, now 54. He told Kim that he'd swam out looking for Linda prior for going for help. Kim said he did the numbers. Little brother swimming out looking, coming to get Kim, Kim running back, Kim search. At a minimum, at a minimum, Linda had to be under the water seven, eight, nine, ten minutes. It's a miracle, just a plain miracle that she was saved, that she even found. As Kim finished the story, I was fighting back tears. I started feeling kind of funny. And I'm thinking, maybe it's the chili. And then Skippy says, boy, that's good chili. Can I have a second bowl? <laughs> no, this feeling was something deep. Stirring in my soul. Kind of like that sweet, soft voice Elijah heard Mount Sinai when God talked to him after hiding from Queen 
while hiding from wicked Queen Jezebel. I'm sure it was the Holy Spirit shaking me up and dressing me down. Suddenly it dawned on me, when was the last time I told my family, my friends, my business associates, with tears in my eyes, with heartfelt thanks, arms flailing, about the man who saved me 26 years ago. The more I thought about it, the more it bothered me. Suddenly, I realized I lost the zeal and the appreciation for the new life that I'd been given when I trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Furthermore, it dawned on me that I'd been trying to be obedient to the teaching of Jesus, but I wasn't and had not been introducing the Son of God, Jesus, who saved my life, and I hadn't been telling others that Jesus loved me, and he loves you so much that he died in my, your place, for our sins, and in doing so saved me, us, from eternal death and separation from Jesus and God. God's word's pretty clear. The wages of sin are death, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. He came to save us. Get this. Jesus didn't stop there coming to save us. He sent the Holy Spirit to indwell in us so we might have the mind of God to better able to discern truth, have wisdom, no longer be a slave to an inherited sin nature. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Since the hearing of this story last October, my spirit has been grieving me, compelling me to ask the question, what caused me or is causing me to lose the zeal to tell? to shout the gospel message to a dying world. A number of things have come to mind. First, Kim wrote a letter to Linda wanting to meet her. Didn't I get a letter From my Savior wanting to meet me? And just not any letter. A divinely inspired one. When you read it, you get to meet your Savior. I can't count how many times I've been too busy to take the time to read this love letter. And what could be so important to make me too busy? busy. <laughs> it seems counterintuitive. The more I thought about it, I think too much ease and comfort lead to a perceived busy where a person loses sight of what is really important. Recently I heard an interview on WDL with the president of uh, Voice of the Martyrs. And he said that once a Chinese pastor had told him the greatest threat to Christianity worldwide is persecution. He said he felt the greatest threat to Christianity in the United States of, the, of, in the United States of America is prosperity. 
Seems to me that the U.S. makes up 12% of the world's population and has 65% of the world's wealth. I think the Chinese pastor hit the nail on the head. We've got it so good, we've taken leave of our senses as a country and as, at times as a church. We're indoctrinated that we are entitled to all we have. We deserve more, and many of us, myself included, pursue that more, and that's the busy that becomes more important than God's love letter. Another part of that indoctrination that we're receiving is the more. Somehow, I don't know where it comes from, we think more will produce peace and security. What a lie from the pit of hell. Surely, if nothing else, 2020 and COVID have dispelled that lie. Hopefully the realization that we aren't in charge and aren't in control and thus not secure in and of ourselves will help everybody look to God for the real peace, the real security. A neighbor lady of mine walking her dog the other day shared with me that she's at peace with all that's going on in the world because she knows God is large and in charge. Amen and amen. Well, I've noted, while I've touched on country, I'd like to touch on our freedoms. Freedom to say pretty much what we want. Freedom to go where we want. Do what we want. Freedom to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Along with these freedoms, we have benefits and a host of other rights and privileges unbeknownst to the majority of the world. And we've received them without ever having to pay for them and oftentimes without acknowledging those who did have to pay for them. And I'm afraid, if we're not careful, we're not diligent, we might forget. We might become lethargic, lazy, apathetic, and we might lose them. And so too regarding our faith, and so too our zeal for sharing the gospel. As I looked into God's word, specifically Colossians 3, I'd like to read this with you. If you want to turn there, that'd be fine. 3.1 Since we have been raised to a new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you shall share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Paul exhorts the Colossae church to remember that they have been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. And that with that, they should have a heavenly perspective focused on Jesus Christ. Great advice 2,000 years ago, as well as today. Before Christ Jesus, we were dead men and women, lying on our backs in ten foot of water with no hope of rescue. But God sent a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is alive in heaven, to whom someday everybody will be accountable and who someday is coming back to make all things right. As I, got writing, as, I got, 
as I wrote this, I got thinking, does the church understand? Does the church realize? Does the church believe that we have a spiritual death sentence without Christ Jesus? Scott Kaczynski wrote a newsletter last month for his ministry. And I'd like to quote something from it. In the second paragraph, he starts out, and I quote, In September 2001, after the horrifying events of the day we now refer to as 9-11, a pastor on the Larry King Live show was asked a question by King on national television. The question was, what's the message from all of this? The pastor answered, the message is, we are all going to die. And we have no control over when and how it's going to happen. Wow, that may sound harsh, insensitive perhaps, and maybe a bit rude, but that's the message. That's the message, plain and simple. We are going to die, unquote. I wonder if some people don't want to address, don't understand, or they just don't want to understand this fact of life. Furthermore, as the pastor so plainly stated, nobody has control over the hour or the day. God's word says that our days were ordained before we ever saw one. As believers, Christians of all people should be keenly aware that they have a death sentence prior to trusting Jesus Christ. Here's what I'm talking about when I say keenly aware. Has anybody ever, anybody here ever, had a gun put to your head? Not a toy gun. I'm talking a real gun with real bullets in a real person's hand. If you ever have, you know it's the most helpless, terrifying, paralyzing feeling you'll ever have. And you'll never, never, ever forget it. And if and when that gun is removed, it's the most euphoric, freeing, wonderful, joyous feeling you'll ever, ever have, and you'll never forget it. I speak from experience. When I was growing up, I lived by Vanderveer Park in Davenport, Iowa. Dad used to tell us kids when we were roughhousing, I didn't buy a house across from an 80-acre park so you could turn it into a jungle gym. Get over there and play. And so we did, for hours on end, many a day. One summer day, I was about 12, I saw a fellow down by the pond feeding the ducks when I heard a loud bang. So I decided to go over and check it out, only to find a boy about 15 years old luring the ducks over, feeding them breadcrumbs, and then blasting them with a handgun. 
I don't know what got into me, but I walked up to him and I asked him, what are you doing? That's when he spun around and pointed the gun at my head, right between my eyes. And he said, is it any of your business? There's something about answering a question with a question that gets your attention. And then just that fast, he spun back around and blasted another duck. I've never been so scared in my life or felt so helpless in all my life. That on top top of trying to maintain bladder control and keeping my knees from locking, unlocking. I turned and ran for my life. I went up to the playground area where two college kids worked the summer for the park board providing games and activities for us neighborhood kids. After telling them what happened, one of them ran across Brady Street to the closest house and used the phone to call the police. In no time at all, the police showed up and arrested the gunman. Needless to say, I have never, ever, forgotten that feeling or that day of having a gun put to my head. Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, please realize that sin was a gun put to our head. But somehow we forget. Maybe because the gun's been removed. But as I've experienced, how can that be? We shouldn't forget such a thing, such an event. Part and partial, I think, we forget because the world and culture we live in is dumbing and numbing us down to the point where people don't know or don't remember what's true, what isn't. Nor do they know or remember when they're in imminent danger. I'm not saying that it's a matter of intellect or brain power because it seems to me that as people get more education as a group, they're more apt to reject God, reject God's Word, the Bible, and even deny God's existence. Case in point, a longtime friend of mine once professed faith in Christ as a young child but was never really grounded in God's Word. Pretty sharp guy, went away to college, and while getting his master's degree, was befriended by an atheist professor who convinced him that God was man-made and that weak people need him as a crutch. So this fellow, my friend, turned his back on God. Well, years ago, after I accepted Christ, after almost destroying my marriage and my family, I wrote my friend, And I asked him if he would share his worldview with me because if he had the truth and Jesus was a lie, I didn't want to spend the rest of my life following Jesus. And I asked him specifically if he would answer three questions for me in line with his worldview. Number one, where did we come from? Number two, why are we here? And number three, where are we going when we die? 
Remember what the pastor said at Larry, to Larry King? We're all going to die. And really, knowing that fact is the first step in living. Because then you have to answer question number three, what happens when you die? And that hopefully will point a person to God. It's been years since I wrote this letter to my friend. Still no answer. Great intellect, but numb to the truth, unwilling or unable to see it. Disbelief isn't unique to my friend, or atheists, or agnostics. I know plenty of people that say they know there's, they know there's a God, but they don't really believe in Him or trust in Him. Which I believe is, to, is due to not knowing Scripture, not having a fear of the Lord, not spending time in the Word, earnestly seeking God. Another story. I once had a young man work for me for a short period of time right after he graduated from college. We got talking about the Bible one day, and I asked him, have you ever read it? He said he had. Then I shared, I read it too, and I'm continu- I was continuing to read it. To which he replied, you don't really believe it, do you? You see, <clears throat> turns out he read it kind of like a good fiction novel. That's not the way God wants us to read his word. We need to read it in earnest, with intent to seek, to know God. When a person really seeks God, he will be found. When a person reads God's word with real intent and real purpose, a relationship will be developed. And over time, that person will become more and more like Christ in character and action and less and less like the world around them. God wants a relationship. God designed us for relationship. It's part, as I said earlier, of us being made in the image of God. When we study and read God's Word, we are building a relationship with our Creator. And also when we spend time in prayer talking to God, that's how we develop relationships. If anybody thinks you're going to develop a close relationship with God by spending four, five, six, seven, eight hours a day on your phone or watching TV or watching movies or on your computer, you're kidding yourself. That's just plain, it's just that plain and simple. You won't be drawn closer to God, rather drawn further away. I know what some of you are thinking. Now, Craig, I've got the Bible on my phone. Well, you might be right. But what else is on there that can interfere with you from spending time with your Creator and your Savior? When you spend time with God, you have to give Him priority, exclusivity. Turn off your phone, turn off your TV, turn off your computer. And so He has your full, undivided attention. Think about this. How many of you married men out there asked your wife's hand in marriage through a text, through a phone call, through a letter? I'm not going to sugarcoat this. I'm just going to tell you, if you did, you're a knucklehead. 
It's not the way to do it. Maybe another story will help, under, help you understand. Anybody ever hear the story about the shy young man who was in love with a girl across town? Well, he was so shy, he couldn't bring himself to go meet her face to face. So he decided to write her a letter. And he wrote a letter every day for 30 days straight for a month. Then finally he got up enough nerve to go see her. So he goes to her house, rings the doorbell, and the girl's mother answers. And the young man asks her, Is your daughter home? To which the mother replies, No, she ran off with the mailman yesterday. See, the mailman had been there 30 days in a row, one on one. <laughs> yep, nothing like face to face, one on one when developing a relationship. I found too, as a one on one relationship grows and develops, so too trust and commitment. Hopefully over time, on our end of the relationship with God, we will be able to say, I trust him so much, I'd play poker over the phone with him. Now some of you young people have phones that you can see the other person. Well, when I was growing up, that was a saying. If you really trusted somebody because you had a landline and you couldn't see the person on the other end. So if you're playing poker and he says he has an ace, you got to trust he has an ace. Unless he says it five times, then you know he's lying to you. I'm fearful that many professed Christians here in the good old U.S. of A. don't trust God enough to play poker over the phone with Him. I see a turning away from God, not turning our backs, just a subtle kind of a sideways slide that weakens our trust and commitment. Kind of like writing letters every day, but not going to see the person in person. I'm guilty. I get so balled up some days, I'm beside myself. I'm not a very good witness. No, in fact, it's no witness at all. And when it happens, I'm not where God wants me to be and not doing what God's designed me for and wants me to do. You'll notice in the sermon notes, those at home don't have it, but the last line is blank. Not a typo on Tammy's part. Rather a fill in the blank. It's left so, so you can think about and answer these questions. What's your understanding of yourself? What's your understanding of who God is? And how does that impact your trust and commitment to Jesus Christ? How does that impact your study of God's Word, your prayer life, and your zeal to share the greatest news ever told? Can you truly say that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your body, all your soul? And that because of that love and commitment, you have a zeal to share God with a lost and hurting world. 
And can you say, you'll never, never, ever forget or allow yourself to be numbed down, dumbed down to the point where you won't tell the world about the God of all creation, the God of truth, the God of love, the God who knows all, who is all, the God who was and is and will always be, the God of power over life, over death, over everything in between, the God revealed, the God that loves, the God who through Christ gives believers new way to live, a new message to share, a new identity, and a new and brighter future. A God that loves so much that He came to earth to save us by dying so we may live. We all need to fill in the blank. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Help us never to forget, Lord, what you've done. Help us never to forget, Lord, the extent to which you went because you loved us so much. You loved all of mankind who you made in your image. Help us, Lord, not to lose sight of that. Help us, Lord, never to lose a zeal, arms flailing, tear-filled eyes, thankful hearts for what you've done. I thank you for this time, Lord. I thank you for your church. Help us to go out, Lord, and be salt and light. Help us to proclaim the greatest news that's ever been, that ever will be. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.